Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. Hey, uh, we're in our series that we're called Real Faith. So if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be reading that passage real quickly uh, here in a second. And if you do not have a Bible, no shame in that. There should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Page 1033 will get you right to 1 John chapter 4. Um, and uh, if you're trying to find your way through, through that page, you'll see two columns, uh, big numbers, small numbers. Big numbers are chapters, little numbers are verses. Kind of treat them like an address. This is how you find your way to where you need to go in, in the Bible. So... Um, uh, in 1957, uh, the BBC, in their show called The Panorama, did this, uh, this sort of this documentary, this, this news came out about an incredible bumper crop harvest of, of, of spaghetti. Uh, there was these spaghetti trees that were producing noodles like they had never produced before. Uh, and because of a mild winter, the, the, the insects and the sort of the things that would keep this bumper crop from happening, they, they, they were wiped out. And so uh, BBC was just t- sharing the good news about what was going on here. And if you're uh, sitting here wondering how you can get your own pasta tree, uh, sorry, th- this was all a hoax uh, that the BBC pulled off. And, but it was, it was so powerful that even the guy who ran the BBC... Um, got his encyclopedia out and began researching um, more about spaghetti trees. He, d- he didn't know uh, that this, this happened. And, and, and also there were people who called into the BBC um, wondering how they, how they could grow their own spaghetti tree. And they were, there were so many phone calls that the BBC was kind of just shocked. And so they just said, well, you just take a little spaghetti noodle and you put in a can of tomato sauce and just watch it take off. And, um, and apparently some people did that. I was actually talking to a, a gal uh, from England who was in our last service, and she says, I saw that show. And, you know, in those days, there was, globalization wasn't, it wasn't taking place, so people didn't know about other ethnic kind of things and foods, and so it was really like that's how they bought into this so quickly. But it was all a hoax. It wasn't true. 1975, Sitka, Alaska, the residents wake up. They, they usually look out across the beautiful waters over the Krusov Island and see Mount Edgecombe. This, it's snow, uh, snow-capped uh, volcano dormant for 400 years. They wake up in April in 1975 and they discover that the, it appears the volcano has come to life. There's black smoke coming out of the, of the cone of the, uh, of the volcano. This was an actual picture take, taken uh, back in the day. People begin packing their belongings up, and they, this evacuation begins, and they're, they're coming out into the streets. Uh, they're calling the authorities. The Coast Guard in Juneau is contacted, and they send out a helicopter. And the helicopter pilot is, is flying towards Mount Edgecombe, and actually when it gets over the crater of Mount Edgecombe, they look down, and what they see causes them to begin to laugh. The crater is filled with hundreds of tires, that have been, uh, kerosene's been poured on them and they've been lit on fire and someone has spray painted in the snow, April Fools. <laughs> it's April 1, 1975. And the guy who did it, his name was Porky Bicker, which explains everything, <laughs> right? He was known as a prankster. In fact, in 1980, when Mount St. Helens blew, someone wrote Porky a letter and said, this time you've gone too far. 
Look, look, we... (laughs) We know that not everything we see or hear is true. We, we all know that. We, we know that you can be easily duped. And when it comes to matters of faith, we also need to realize that that's the same thing, that not everything you see or hear is true. And sometimes when you do embrace something that's, that's, that's a hoax and it's not true, it can lead to some pretty tragic results. Um, if, for example, if I say the name Jim Jones in Jonestown, um, some of you in the room remember just the tragedy that took place there as people were, were, were deceived. And if I mention the name David Koresh in Waco, Texas, again, some of us in the room remember the tragedy that took place there where people were led astray by deception and what was false. Those are the extreme examples. But sometimes the the examples aren't so extreme. Sometimes it's just the subtle things that just get us off track and actually hamper our relationship with Jesus. Uh, Recently there was a well-known pastor who wrote a book and talked about the fact that that everyone's going to go to heaven, that no one's going to be separated from from God, and people began to just wonder, is is that true? In our day and age, there have been uh, conversations about, you know, that certain expressions of sexuality, you know, this is okay and that's not okay. And, and how, how do you know what's true and, and what's deception and what's false? And, and what I want to help us understand here today is that people of real faith know how to test for what is true and what is false. They know how to discern. And in fact, as I read 1 John chapter 4 here, what you're going to hear is you're going you're to hear John talking to a young church that uh, has embraced some false teaching. And it's, it's not an issue maybe that we deal with today so much, but in their day it was pretty big. And it had to do about something that was pretty core to the faith, the, the incarnation, that God would come, that Jesus would come and take on flesh, that he would be a human being, and that he would lay aside his divine prerogatives, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, and he would live a sinless life so that he could go to the cross and pay our sin debt for us. And, and, and that teaching was, was being compromised because there were some who were called Gnostics. In, in that day, the Gnostics believed that anything that was physical, like a human body, was evil. Only spiritual things were, were, were holy. But anything that had matter to it was, was not holy. So the idea of God taking on a body, they rejected and, and taught that that wasn't true. So John is going to address this. And, um, and so I want to read 1 John chapter 4 so you get a sense of what he's going after here. He says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body That person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to this world. So they speak from the world's viewpoint, and the world listens to them. But we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. This is God's holy word. Now, 
I want to go after two questions today, trying to answer these two questions. The first question is going to be this one. How do I know if what I'm hearing or seeing is really true? People of real faith know how to test for what is true and what is deception. How do, how do I know? How do I do that? We're going to go after that one, but we're going to go after a second question that's got some relevance to, a, to culture today. And that question is this. Aren't truth claims restrictive and an enemy to personal freedom? Isn't it isn't restrictive of God to say that I, you know, I can do this, but I can't do that? And, and am I being held back from something? We'll go after that question as well. But we're going to start with that, that first question, um, which, which is this. How do I know if what I'm hearing or seeing is really true? And as we do this, you know, you, you've probably heard uh, someone say to you, or maybe you've read it in a book or seen it in, in, a, in a movie or a, or, you know, a TV show, that you have to have an open mind. And there's some wisdom to that. As people of learners, we, we want to make sure that we're growing and we're, and we're growing and have an understanding. And, and if we're going to understand what's happening uh, to us or, or through us or in our world, we need, to have, we need to understand one another and listen well to one another. So having an open mind is, is actually a good thing. But the caution here, I think, is captured by G.K. Chesterton when he speaks about this. He actually, I think he nails it on the head. He says, the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. Otherwise, it is more akin to a sewer, taking in all things equally. You see what Chesterton is getting at here? There are some things that should be rejected and some things that should be fully embraced. So yes, open your mind, but know when to bite down on what is solid and what is true and know when to let go of something and reject it. So we're going to talk about that. How... How do I know if something is true or not? I mean, how, how do I know if it's false? Um, and let me just kind of give you a, a picture, a metaphor to help us as, as I can explain this. When I was a kid growing up in Hong Kong, uh, my mom loved to bake. And I loved uh, to uh, be there when she was baking, not because I was interested in learning how to bake. I, I was actually more interested in eating what she baked. But the beginning part of the process fascinated me. Because mom would take uh, uh, this grid of screens, a sieve, and she would put the flour into it. And she had a bowl or in a plate, and she would pour the flour in, the, in, this, in this sieve or this grid, and she'd sort of bang it against her hand over the bowl. And the flour would start popping through the bottom. And um, what she was doing there is she was, uh, she was sort of cleaning out the flour because in the tropics, Insects and bugs love to make their home in the cool white flower. And so the, the part that I loved is when all the flour got through, I loved to see all the stuff that was alive in the bottom of the sieve. And mom would give me the sieve, or she'd bang it on a plate or bang it in the garbage, and I would just stare at it. It was fascinating to me. The, the, yeah, I know I have my own issues. But the, the, the point here is that there's some stuff in there that you do not want in your muffins, Right? You don't want to be biting down on weevils. You want that stuff out. So what if there was a way to, to take what we're hearing or seeing and bounce it through the sieve? Because, friends, spaghetti doesn't grow on trees, right? So what, how, do, how do we do that? Well, let me create a kind of a, a grid for us that I think could help us. It starts here. We ask ourselves a series of questions. One of the first things we could ask is, is this consistent with the teachings of Jesus? Hey, what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing, does this sound like Jesus? Is this how Jesus tells us to treat our enemies? Is this how Jesus tells us to respond when, when people insult us? 
Is this what Jesus says about generosity? Uh, one of the ways we kind of bounce the, the flower through the sieve or bounce what we're hearing or, bounce what we're hearing or seeing through the, through the grid is simply to ask that question. It's a very helpful question. Uh, a second question you could ask is this. Is, what does the apostolic witness have to say? Now, here's what I mean by that. What, what, what did the apostles, the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life have to say about this? Did, did they speak out on this in any way? In fact, I don't know if you noticed this when I was reading 1 John chapter 4. John, who in chapter 1, verse 1 says, hey, we saw him, we touched him, we hung out with him, we were eyewitnesses. And then at, at, the, at the end there, as I was reading in verse 6, he says, we belong to God, and those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. It's a pretty bold thing for him to say. If you agree with me, you're good. If you disagree with me, you're bad, you're out. Now, why, how does he get away with saying that? Because he was a witness. He was a firsthand eyewitness. It's sort of like this. You got someone who was there in Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. They were there. They were there when the battle was happening. They saw the planes flying in. They saw the ships blowing up. They were there. Their testimony has great credibility, especially compared to someone, say, born in the 1980s, who's read about it, who, who might have some of the facts. But if you really, if you had an opportunity to talk to someone who was there on December 7th, versus someone who studied it, you would know that the person who was there probably has the, well, they would have the most credible eyewitness account of what took place that day. Is that, is that making sense to you? That's why John would say something so bold. It's like, hey, those who, who agree with us, they belong to God. We were there. We touched him. We saw him. We had dinner with him. We heard him teach. We saw the miracles. And, and Jeff led us in the reading of a creed today, which actually is a, is a, is a summary, or he, as he put it, the cliff notes to what some of the apostles actually witnessed and, and believed. These creeds were summations of, uh, of the apostolic witness. How many of you have heard the Nicene Creed before? Or you read it in church? Okay, a lot of you have. Some of you haven't. That's, that's okay. Uh, that, there's the Nicene Creed. It was written in the early 4th century. The reason it's called the Nicene Creed is because it was written in the town of Nicaea, which is close to modern-day Istanbul. It's in modern-day Turkey. Now, for several hundred years, the early church was persecuted. It was, uh, it was, if you were a Christian in those days, it was, it was rough. There were people that were thrown to lions. There were people who were, who were persecuted and tortured, that property taken away from them. But in, in the early 4th century, there was a new Roman emperor, and his name was Constantine. And Constantine legalized Christianity, actually made it the state religion. Um, and, and, but up to that time, the church had been underground. And what happens when the church goes underground is that it's separated from each other, and sometimes false teaching comes in, and, um, and the church kind of wanders off target a bit. Well... You have the, the, the Roman Empire now. It's okay to be a Christian. So the church leaders all gather in Nicaea, and there's been some misunderstanding about who Jesus is and about the Trinity. So I'm going to put the Nicene Creed up here, and you're going to see it. I'm, I'm not going to read it because it's fairly long, but here's what I want you to notice. It's broken down. This, this, this far left-hand column is what they wrote about God the Father. 
See how little they wrote about God the Father? It, it's, it's because they didn't have a problem. That, was, that wasn't the question. On the far right-hand side, this is what they wrote about the Holy Spirit and the church and the resurrection of the dead. It's pretty condensed. If you were to separate all three of those, you'd have about this much uh, written on each of those topics here on the, on the far left-hand side. But the centerpiece here is all about Jesus. See, the, the church was recalibrating to orthodoxy on who Jesus is based on the apostolic witness. And so that's why they wrote it. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, they just laid it all out. And that, that, the creeds are a way that we can go back and say, okay, what did, the, what did the first followers of Jesus have to say about this? So go back to the grid. We've got two questions here. But here's the thing I want you to see. Sometimes Jesus, it, well, sometimes the things that Jesus taught or sometimes what the apostles had to say, they, they don't directly relate to a topic that you and I are dealing with. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus never said anything about pot. He never talked about medical marijuana and, or pot and, what, you know, is it okay, is it not okay? In fact, if you read the creeds, you're not going to find anything about weed in the creeds. Now, in our day and age, this is a conversation. What's okay, what's not okay? So what happens when Jesus is silent or the early church is silent? Well, just because they're silent doesn't mean there's not some wisdom to be learned. And the third question will help us here. Does this harmonize with the broader biblical witness? As I look at the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, what's the wisdom that would help me understand whether this is bugs in the bottom of a sieve that should be tossed out, or is this the good stuff that we should make the muffins with? Knowing Scripture will help us. This is, this is the grid, friends. This is when what we, everything we see or hear is not true. And people of real faith know how to test for truth and for what is deception. So they sort of bang, bang the, that, what they're seeing and hearing through the sieve and, and what doesn't pass through the grid, what doesn't match the teachings of Jesus or, or match the apostolic witness or match the heart of what Scripture is saying is tossed to the side. Which actually then leads us to the second question. Because just saying that, that hey, if it doesn't fit the grid, I mean, that this is where the, the question comes that isn't, isn't it restrictive? Aren't truth claims restrictive and an enemy to personal freedom? Because uh, you know, you're saying that, hey, here's what's true and this is how we should live and this, we shouldn't do this and, and aren't you holding me back from stuff that's good? Well, let, let me kind of take a, a, a stab at this question here from a different angle. There was a movie in 2004, it was called iRobot, uh, Will Smith starred in it, and he plays this role of Detective Spooner. And Spooner uh, has, there's another character, his name is Sonny, okay, I'll put it up here on the screen, here's the picture, there's Will, Sonny is the robot here on the far left hand side, here's all the other robots, and the, the plot of the movie is that there's this robot army that's going to take over the world, but a designer, a programmer, has specifically chose Sonny and programmed him to thwart this robot rebellion. Tim Keller kind of fleshes this out in his book called Reason for God. And, uh, and so what happens is that this, this, this actually happens in, I mean, not in real life, but in the movie, that, uh, that Sonny thwarts the rebellion. But after the rebellion is over, there's this interesting conversation 
that Spooner has with Sonny. Here's what Sonny says. Sonny says, now that I have fulfilled my design purpose, I don't know what to do. Spooner replies, I guess you'll have to find your way like the rest of us, Sonny. That's what it means to be free. And if you didn't catch it, that phrase, the screenwriter, the, the, the script writer, captures the spirit of the age in our day. Because this is what every movie, every book, every commercial has a lesson to it. Okay? I'm not saying it's a good lesson. There's a message. Here's the message of iRobot. We'll put it up here on the screen. If there is a set of divine directives from your maker that you have to comply with, you're just a robot. If you are, if you are under rules, or you're, or you're saying there, I ha, there's a certain way I need to live, that you're under this, then you are just a robot. You are not free. In fact, that... that that's exactly, actually, that's, you may have heard that in different ways. Someone uh, put it this way. Uh, they're saying, any claim that something is true is really an assertion of power. This is, you're holding, you're saying I can't live this way, and you're doing that because you're in a position of power, and you just want us to be robots. And, and the, the irony of this statement is that's actually a truth claim, right? So, if, if you're testing that truth claim by its own truth claim, it's an assertion of power. So it, it sort of defeats itself. But really behind this whole idea is something I think we're missing. And actually it's an age-old question. And let me illustrate it this way. When my kids were younger and Trina and I were living in, in Hood River, we had this home that was kind of on this rounded corner. It was a busy street. Uh, cars drove by pretty fast. Um, and our house was there, and we had this driveway, and it was, it was pretty wide, and, and not super long, but just, you know, fairly long. And our kids would love to ride their bikes in the driveway. But the cars would drive by really fast around that corner, and, um, and there'd be a lot of accidents. They'd come around that corner and sort of fly into a neighbor's yard, which we were on the inside corner, which was, that was helpful. Um, but what we did is our kids liked to play outside. They like to ride their bikes and their trikes and be out there. So what Trina and I did is that we went out to the driveway with a piece of chalk and drew this line across the driveway where we felt it was unsafe for them to go, to cross this line. Now, you're not going to believe this, but our kids, they got on their bikes and their trikes, and they're riding around the driveway. And, and, and your kids probably didn't do this, but my kids saw the line. And the first time, it's like as close as they could to that line, right? <laughs> and they're sort of driving around the driveway, and we're watching, and we're kind of chuckling. It's like, I don't know what it is when you draw a line. It's like, I just want to get there as close as I can. And then one of our kids just kind of went around with, with their trike and saw the line and took a look at us and just kind of just, you know, just went right just a little bit over <laughs> and noticed that, that she lived. And so... She's taking the bike around the driveway again, and um, she's kind of looking around, and then she just kind of goes a little bit farther over the line and comes down and just goes right around. Now, why did we draw the line? Because it's dangerous on the other side of the line. And so I walked out there and was expressing that, hey, don't 
don't go on the other side of the line. It's, it's, it's dangerous over there. And, you know, if you cross the line again, you, you will experience danger. Um, <laughs> but the heart behind... So the question is, is drawing a line a restriction from freedom, from something as good, or did the person, did the dad draw the line for our good? Here's the question. The question really is, it's not about is, is truth restrictive and an enemy to personal freedom. The question really is, is God good? Is he good? Now, you, you may not believe God is good, and you might perceive that those truth claims are restrictive and keep you back from stuff, but well, here's what God is doing. He's just drawing a line saying, you go past, it's dangerous out there. It's just dangerous out there. He's a good God, and that's why he gives us this pathway, this way to walk in, because he seeks our very best. It's not his, he's a killjoy. Actually, he wants your life to thrive. He wants you to experience an abundant life. That's why the lines are drawn. Yet, the spirit of the age would say, man, if you happen to submit to that stuff, you're just a robot. Friends, if God made us robots, what kind of love would that be if he didn't give it the freedom to choose him? That's not true love. True love has the choice to submit to the truth that he gives us. And that's what he longs for us. And people of real faith know how to test and see if this is true or this is false. Now, just kind of process this a little bit and we just make some application and we'll, and we'll be done. So what do we do this? Here, here's a good question to ask. It's simply this. Go back to the grid. Put it on the screen. Have I embraced anything as true that the grid rejects? Do you have weevils in your muffins? Have you been bouncing through and go, ah, but I really like that. Could it be the Holy Spirit today is saying something to you about that attitude, about that cynicism, about that behavior? Could it be that the grid is saying, you gotta toss that out. And the invitation to you from God's Spirit today is, is to repent which can sound like a scary word, but simply what it's doing is just saying is agree with God, to recalibrate your life, to, 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 to recenter your life to what God's heart is for you. So is there anything that the Spirit would say to you is that that's not making it through the grid. I, we, I want to talk to you about that. And the second way to imply what we've been, we've been talking about today is, is simply just to learn the language of Scripture. One of the ways that you'll make great decisions in life, one of the ways you will grow in wisdom is to be in great relationship with the one who is wise, all wise. And one of the ways you can do that is simply by knowing what he's already said. He's still a speaking God. But what he speaks today will never violate what has already been written. So we learn the language. You know, the, the, the Haynes family, they got young kids. All those kids are going to learn language. And they're not going to necessarily learn it in classes, they're going to learn at home because they're immersed in it. That's exactly what you're doing. You're doing it today. You're here. We're learning the language of Scripture together. We're learning God's heart. You're doing it in Bible studies. You're doing it in your community groups. You're doing it in your alone time with God. You keep doing it. Keep, keep immersing yourself in Scripture so that when 
if someone cuts you, you bleed it. You bleed scripture. This is what Jesus did in the wilderness. When, when, when he was tempted, scriptures say, he, he, he knew the Father's heart. So the challenge for us is to, is to know the Father's heart, and one of the ways we can do that is simply by learning the language of scripture. Because God's good, and he has our best in mind, and people of real faith know how to test the difference between what is false and what is true. Let's pray together. So Lord, uh, we're just going to take a pause here and we're going to listen to you because I think you have some things to say to us about who you are. You want us to know who you really are. Did you speak? And Lord, there's Maybe for some of us, we're hearing you speak to us about a kind of mid-course correction we need to make. Some stuff that didn't survive the grid or the sieve. Would you speak to us about that? Jesus, today we declare that you are good. We want to follow hard after you. We thank you that you are so patient with us. You're so gracious. We thank you that we're seated in the heavenly realms, that you look at us and you see us as righteous. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that when we look at our own lives. But what encouragement that is to keep choosing to follow you. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.